Welcome to The Uncertain Artist, where each week we discuss the highs and lows of forging a life in the arts, specifically the collaborative arts, and mostly here in Seattle. Our starting point each week is an episode of the YouTube show, The Uncertain Detective, which was created by me, Greg Lashow, and I'm joined by our show's writing and story consultant, Joe Cuppy. Today, we'll be discussing episode 12 from our second season with our guest, Annette Totangi, who plays the role of assistant detective. Did you get a chance, Joe, to rewatch the episode? I, I did see it. Yeah, I got a got a big kick out of it. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's it's a, a precious episode to me, and certainly. Really, I wonder what you what you thought of it, or what, what jumped out at you, or well, uh, the, the, of course, Annette was very funny and and really terrific, and I look forward to talking about uh, unpacking her performance. Um, but usually, I mention something other than what the guest was in because uh, just and we a, can segue later uh, to that. Uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, a, a different highlight uh, than the than the guest. Um, and the highlight for me was the we get to actually see the the moon rock that your dad gave you. That's in that episode. Yeah, and uh, and that that reminds is that where I'm like looking at yep, and trying and to figure out is this really a moon rock? exactly. We should, it, for those who, uh, for those less than hardcore fans who haven't uh, uh, seen all the episodes or put all the plots together, um, you uh, you're, you're you're talking to your sister and your and your brother uh, on different occasions about this moon rock that your dad gave you, and it looks like your illusions might be becoming shattered about whether it's a real moon rock. Or yeah. Not. Yeah. So it's very Charlie Brown esque, which I know is one of your high compliment right one, there. One of your uh, inspirations here, but I think my so high, let me just say, yeah. at a certain point in my life, I realized that pretty much everything I've ever done just stems from peanuts, without ever consciously thinking about it. Mm. Um, so yeah, keep going. Thanks. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> that's so, how old I am. So your character is kind of the Charlie Brown character, and uh, is oh, you. <laughs> You've not, not you've not noticed that. No, I've never thought about that. No. Okay, um, but anyway, uh, the the touch that I really enjoyed, and maybe people are just going to have to watch the episode to get this, is the the fact that you're wearing these uh, like surgical gloves <laughs> when you pick up them because it might be because it might be. And Charlie Brown says, "I got a rock." Yeah. Wow, yeah. all the connections. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of connections when you watch the episode. Uh, um, more than once, um, as I want to do to prepare for the podcast, um, you, you see connections like, well, obviously there's a plant falling. That's an obvious connection, but just the way the, the family's life weaves into the art, I think is one of the coolest things about the show. Yeah. So partly it's precious to me because of the opening scene where I'm talking on zoom with my sister. Right. Uh, it, it has like my favorite shot maybe that i've ever done which is just uh at one point i pick her up as she so she goes outside mm, to show right. me this tree that she planted yeah. for our dad and i pick the um laptop up and every time i watch it i forget that i'm inside a different frame while right. i'm watching it yeah. and it's always so magic just magic to me already. yeah i'm no. afraid so okay on my way here, I realized, one, I don't want to tell another disaster story, although I have a lifetime full. Um, but, and I realized, okay, be honest, one of the reasons I have a hard time watching my stuff again is I'm afraid to be severely disappointed, mm -hmm. right? So it lives, it's this weird thing when you make work, 
you have this weird combination of like, I'll make an episode and then we're working on the next or whatever I'm doing as the next. And the stuff behind me is worthless, meaningless. Like mm-hmm. I have no sure. interest in it. And I don't, I, you know, don't want anyone to see it because I'm about to do something that might actually be good. And then the weird thing is at the same time, when I go to start up again, I look back at old work and think I could never do something like that. Oh, it's sure. a strange paralyzing yeah. in both directions. Right. Yeah. 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 Very yeah. paradoxical and not in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> and the, <laughs> and the other, analysis. um, the other reason I love it is I think we did such a good job in the detective's office, right? Turning our living room into detective's office and casting phenomenal actors. Yeah. Um, one of whom's with us today. So let's listen to that clip. Uh, this is uh, us. Um, so let's see what's happening. The assistant detective is interviewing a potential client uh, who wants to be taken on. And I think she's skeptical about right. whether it's Matt a, worth, a worthy uh, endeavor for Matt Olson being the editor. I want to give him props. Thank you. So let's listen to that. Suck it up, buddy. We're all being tracked all of the time. This is different. Like if I go to my phone, all the ads I'm seeing are for things that are happening right now. Detective agency, severe anxiety, world travel, right? It's like they know what I'm thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why won't she take this case? Because it's boring. Becoming invisible to technology? Come on. I caught a real invisible person murderer just the other day. Really? Happens all the time. But does anybody care? No. What we need is a case with some blood and guts. Something that'll make people sit up and notice. I see what you mean. Thanks for your time. If you ever murder someone, then want to talk invisibility, let us know. Okay, I will. Anything interesting? Nope. Guy just wanted to become invisible to technology. What I love about that clip is because I got to write it for the two actors and I've worked with both of them before. Um, I just had a ability to sort of imbue it with the specificity that uh, I knew both actors would go and take it to, you know, another place. In other words, I could sort of trust that it didn't have to all be in the lines. Um, and, but then to, you know, see it get worked out. I think we did a bunch of takes of that and it was like, so satisfying as a director because I didn't have to really do anything. Anyway, let's welcome Annette Tatangi. Hi, Annette. Hello. Thank you so Hi. much for being here. Um, yeah, I'm super excited you're here. I was talking with Joe earlier today that one of the cool things about this podcast is I have a conversation with someone that I've known often for a long time, and I actually know so little about you. That's, But we'll, we'll find some stuff out. But I want to start with that clip and that scene. Um I don't know what resonates about what I said for you, and you can say anything you want. You don't have to like back me up or anything. Which part of what you said? So, okay, so let's go. Let me get a specific. 
I think I'm okay in the show as an actor. I know that as an actor in something else, I wouldn't be very good. And I've never quite figured out like, what am I missing? What am I not paying close enough attention to? So when you're given a script, whether it's play or TV or film, what is your goal in like, first of all, do you trust the script or do you think, how can I make this script better? That's my first question. Oh, well, with your scripts, I, I f- now I feel like I'm going to be, I'm not, I'm not trying to flatter, Yeah, let's pretend but I'm always excited when I get one of your scripts. I, I would never, I would never um, think, how can I fix this script? Um, but especially there are certain people who write that I look forward to when I get the script. But I think as an actor, it's your, I mean, the idea, I know there are some actors who go, I need to fix this. And I feel like for me, a lot of times um, when when there's something um, that feels awkward in a script at first or difficult, those are often the moments that become little gifts as you work on it. So I, you know, the places where you don't immediately feel comfortable, but your scripts always offer, I don't know, I feel like, um, we've worked together enough that there's a familiarity, um, and a trust. And I, I, I never feel, and I, I love your sense of humor, um, and your perspective that also, I feel like there's always, it's funny and there's a deep kind of sadness there. And that particular, um, I have a friend in theater who called it like Seattle, Seattle is full of sad clowns. And I feel Uh, like, you know, there's a, and not clowns like Ronald McDonald, clowns in the best possible sense of the word. In the European sense of the clown. Yeah. And I, I feel like there's a quality, um, to your scripts that, for me, this is the longest, most roundabout answer ever. Love it. For me, I'm really excited. I, I have so many things way. to think about. Um, so one thing that you made me think about was, could you use the word trust? And, you know, as an actor, but as any kind of artist, I suppose, trust is such an important ingredient. But at the same time, you have to balance that, right, with, well, my job is to make this work. Yeah. And so... Maybe that's not working, like, and I have to fix that, and maybe we want to adjust this, and like, that balance of, you know, is a tough. I think it's a like a tightrope. I think. Yeah, I think it's usually about when you're feeling, you know, that gap between when I'm feeling a gap between me and the work. It's usually about where can I get more specific? What can I, mm. you know, what can I shine a light on? in my homework in, in terms of, uh, what part of my experience can help me empathize with this moment in a more specific way or. And are you conscious when you're doing that? Well, of course the answer is yes, but maybe you could talk about a little like of, well, as I change, I have to make sure I'm changing within the world that I'm a part of. And if it's changing, like you have to be in the same play as everyone else or the same. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. 
Yeah, but there's always a personality to the voice in the work. Um, actually, I was talking with Joe about the <laughs> one challenge I had with this episode is right before I did it, um, I did this show where I played the inspectress. Oh, I saw you in that, and you're fantastic in it. Really funny. It's very different voice. And the name of it is the three, three busy Debras. Oh yeah, really different voice, completely different voice. And I, I think that was some part of my. Oh, there's sort of an overlap in your character. In my so head, superficially, I get that. Superficially, yeah. but in my head, I was sort of. It was so. You know, close, um, in time. That I had a hard time shaking a little bit that heightened kind of feeling, which is never really present in your work. It, your work is always um, you just kind of zero in on the quiet part of someone's heart. Uh, I'm remembering now when we shot it that I could kind of feel your search for that center of gravity between the comedy. And the, you know, let's not go into farce kind of. And yeah. it was interesting to watch. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm very curious about this. The actor doing the homework. I I told the story in a previous podcast about how a, a trained actor once saw one of my almost live bits where I was doing a character, and he asked me about my preparation for the character and how did I and and I, I like I don't know what you're talking about. I just I just did it. You know, I just did it off of com like comedy instinct, and I think that's kind of true of a lot of improvisers or co more comedic type. Now you're very much a comedic type, but you have a huge range from Othello to uh, you know children's programs, uh, children's plays, and stuff like that. But all that to say, when I when I, we just watch that clip and I see these very specific choices you're making, kind of line to line, word to word, which to me is what makes it spark, right? Uh, do you do you work each of those out as you're doing your your homework, or is the homework more of a deep thing, or both? Um, getting familiar with the music of the script, like sure, but beyond the homework is not generally about lines so much except in learning them it for me it's more about um um relationships with people and things um with the situation just uh so are you focused for example in that scene on your you asking yourself what's my relationship to the to the client to Madelson's character yeah a little bit of that the job um, um thinking about my relationship to the job and because i think the stakes in that scene are about um you know there there have been a few assistant detectives and this was like this person's chance to be the assistant detective and there there's some stakes and in, mm -hmm. in whether or not she does a good job of being this the assistant detective and um, i'm remembering so one of the things i love about working with actors who are good at what they do they get to a place where they know what's true and not true for their character and you know annette in a different I don't remember this happening with this, but in a different situation, like one of our stage shows, you know, might have said, I might have said, like, put the coffee cup down first and almost like aghast at the suggestion, you would say, well, no, I wouldn't put the coffee cup down first, you know, because it's just not 
it's a bad example, but it's not true. And and as a, a director, you're like, fuck, what just happened? Like I, I, it felt like I, you know, insulted the truth of the characters. I mean, really, all I'm getting back from the actor is. I've done my work. I'm ready to do, you know, go to the places that are true. And if I feel like it's not that, I'll make sure to defend my care. You know, the 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 holiness of the character or something. I don't know. Is any of that? That was it's pretty far. Because I was thinking, like, on the way here, I was thinking about working with you in the past. And one thing that I like about working with you is you give these moments where there are parameters that at first feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. And it's the, it's the challenge of that, uh, working within those parameters that leads to often some of the most fun. So let's talk about one specifically that occurs to me as you say that. So um, uh, my wife, Megan Murphy, and I often do over the years uh, shows that sort of interweave live music, theater, dance, film. And, uh, and that's been a principal player in some of those. And in the most recent one we did, I guess, which now is a few years ago, um, I asked Annette to do a scene. Do you know what one I'm going to be talking about? I bet you're talking about, you had Sarah do a scene. Yeah. So can you tell tell the, our audience what, what I can't, I can't remember exactly was. what. Well, so Sarah was. Well, no, yeah. at first, my first reaction was terror. But uh, Sarah had gone to the theater and watched the most beautiful show. No, she was the show. But so, she was the show for me. Yes. But for her, oh. it started with her scene. She had gone to the theater. Okay, so the, Sarah's character tell talks to the audience. The audience uh, about by the way, our audience is really confused yeah. right now. Let me. So in this show yeah. called "The Man Who Can Forget Anything," uh, Sarah Harlett uh, talks about this show. Are you sure? She had a monologue I about think... going to the theater and watching no, this no, incredibly no. beautiful show, and then I watched her do that monologue, and did, and I. As, and that was the show, and I. So your task was to be in fr to, to be in in one right, so be in front of this giant curtain on the boards, right, and, and wordlessly describe Sarah, the show that Sarah was, and Sarah's show, which was a, itself a, a memory of another show, exactly. Okay. So this sounds desperately terrible, but it was actually no, magical. It was fun. It sounded terrifying, and it was so much. Fun. You like the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. But my first reaction was sheer terror. And then um, it was just delightful. And so that was giving you parameters without getting too specific and saying, I trust you. You can make this work. Yeah, but I don't mind. I actually am one of those actors. I don't mind specificity because there's no way. if you. Like, I, I don't mind a, a line read. I don't care because there's no way I'm ever going to be. Whoever's giving me the line reading on me. When I was you in know? college, our, uh, someone, some theater person said, if you ever give a line reading to an actor again, you're out. Yeah. There's and some that really that like stuck with me. Yeah. I think it bothers a lot. But for me, it's a, it's just a point of inspiration. I'm never going to, mm. I will never copy that. Mm. It's not going to happen with this instrument. So it's more of a, a little that, seat. That's the first time I've ever heard any defense of a line reading because that's. It's, I'm not it's, saying do it all the time. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't really mind it. It must be a, a religious thing among people who have. Uh, you know, this makes me think of another challenge in comedy, 
you know, it's often like take one worked and then take 72 worked. Or another version of that would be, please don't do something funny. The camera's not rolling right now. Or telling the crew, if you laugh, like I have definitely told my crew, if you laugh at something this actor does, you need to leave the set. Because on film, well, probably in theater too, once you have heard that laugh, you start playing for the laugh and you're not going to get the laugh at that point. That's a really tough challenge, isn't it? And I've seen you play around with, you know, six different versions of the same thing, but it's hard to, like, once something works, it's, you have to find a way to do it without playing for the laugh, right? I don't know if that rings. Yeah, well, I think that, I think that the deal is you you're never doing it for the outcome you have to find it the you have to find it each time anew and um yeah you uh hmm. the, as soon as you're thinking of an outcome right you you're familiar with a path but you can't be thinking about the end of the path you have to be in the moment each step of the way yeah, see, I'm so conscious as an actor of like I can feel myself thinking, "Is this funny?" You know, and that kills it. But haven't haven't you? Surely you've been in in stage shows. Uh, I'm just thinking. I guess I speak for myself first, which is that I've been in comedy shows with live audiences where we were doing a run, and we knew when the laughs were going to come. Yeah, right. You you get you get into that kind of groove, don't you? Or at least you, you can do. feel the audience, yeah. and it'll be different night to night, but you can feel the energy in a certain way the audience decides what kind of play we're doing tonight like they're they're in a certain like i've i've been in shows where the audience decided this is a tragedy (laughs) and another night when they decided it's a comedy and you kind of have to ride that wave like you ride that wave you're you're true to the you have to stay true to the story you're telling and and it's a conversation and ride that wave because you're not talking to another person. You're talking to that person, that audience. Last week we were talking with uh, Ryan Purcell, our DP. And he said, you'll correct me on how I made it, but he said, yeah, when you're making a movie, the movie is always about the people making it. Did he say something? Was that a pretty good well, the, the Kind of the story that's going on amongst the the crew and the filmmakers and and I guess their lives and on the set that story is reflected in the story of the film. And I mean, that was really something I'd never heard before. Really. I don't know. Does that feel true, false, uh, not my life? Yeah, it feels true to me. I mean, there's, there's so many, it's a performance is a living thing and then it's gone, whether you're recording it for film um, or doing it on stage or doing voiceover. It's a, it's living in the moment and then it's gone and I think it's affected by everything. Your scene partners, the director, the audience, everybody who's involved in for a theater, everybody who's backstage affects the the so, energy. So for the show that we just talked about, the three Debras, which is just akin to what I do in a certain way and that we're both low budget, but they're still like a hundred times more money than I have. Could you just fill me in? Like, I never asked you about this, but I was curious. Like, what's, how is it different? You know, what's the crew different? Like, is it, how many people are, are on It's set? a big crew. Really? I mean, for Seattle, it's a pretty big crew. And right. it was also, we shot it. Um, is, why was it shot in Seattle? Are they Seattleites, the creators? Okay, I'm going to try to tell this story. I'm going to get it 
a little bit wrong. Oh, okay. I have to say, this is me telling the story, and it's like a game of telephone. So this is two truths and a lie, audience. See if you can find um, a lie. They were going to shoot somewhere else in the country, and that state passed some laws that were um, problematic uh, for women and non-binary mm -hmm. people, and um, they decided we don't want to shoot in that state, and they looked at Seattle, and then they shot a season here, and it's my understanding that the first season they they fell in love with the crew and the and the talent pool here, and came back for their for their next season. So was the process of being a part of that with a larger crew? I know it's not a feature film, a Hollywood film, but it's still much bigger than what we do. Was the did it still nevertheless feel like yeah, I do my thing, and it doesn't really affect me, or did it feel different to you as an actor because of the scale was a little different? I think everything was a little different because we shot on location mostly for my episode so we were only in the studio one day and um also it's a little it was a little beefier crew because it was hbo and they have you know but it was people that it, it was a bunch of people i work with all the time mm -hmm. on other films they're you know i some of local, them local crew yeah, yeah. It, they hired locally so you know, I think there were some people from LA, but it was mostly local. And um, the customer I'd work with SJ um, on her film with, and I mean the the scenic uh, design. Uh, SJ Chiro in the film. Yeah, SJ was... Chiro, late nineteen seventy four. I mean, there were Aaron O'Kay. I think was I'm trying to think. Um, what was the name of the film again? The S.J. Chiro film? Lane 1974. Right. There were people from Thin Skin who worked on Three Busy Depras. There were people from... Okay, so part of what we do is shout out artists Thin here. So Thin Skin is directed currently by, playing, right? Like it's out yeah, in the world now. Yeah, it just got a release. Um, it's um, video on demand and had a limited theatrical release. And Charles Madede. Charles Madede directed it and uh, Mayfile. Aluo and his wife Lindy uh, wrote it. Um, Seattleites, Lindy West, and and Charles, I think, helped Lindy West. Mm. And um, so let me go back. So you're, I don't even know where you're from. Are you from Seattle? What's funny? You should ask. I I was born in Seattle, but my IMDb oh. thing says Soldatna, so somehow, and I haven't so, Soldatna, Alaska, which I I did live there for a while. But IMDb I, is the single worst website on. on you can't update it. I've written yeah. them, you That's know, an awful. email saying, "I'm me," and I'm telling you, I wasn't yeah, wasn't yeah. born there. Like, we need a birth certificate, and we need this, oh, wow. we need that. Okay, but you've been a Seattleite life lifetime. lifetime. Yeah, I I I spent some part of my childhood in Alaska. And you, I'm not. I mean, you've done so many things, but can you pick one out that was like, oh, let me actually step back. This is a tough question. Are you would would twenty year old you be happy with the amount of work you've gotten to do and the type of work you've gotten to do? Hard question. I don't think any actor would say yeah to that. Just about um, because when you're twenty, you have the concept that there's more work than there is, and especially if you're um, not a fella. Um, 
or you know any other um a member of any other sort of group that's not um right in the center of casting i i yeah i don't i mean i i'm happy with the work i've gotten i feel lucky if the art and, gods were to smile on your life what what would be happening in the future that you'd be thinking oh yeah yeah i'm glad i stuck with it well i'm gonna stick with it because i you know it's uh I feel more like me when I'm doing art and um so and I love it. But I guess more work. Yeah, I love film, I love theater and I love TV. So good answer. Your 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 response uh, about your your 20-year-old self and how how the 20-year-old artist looks at the future brought a question to my mind, which were you ever in a play in a in a in a role like early on where you thought, oh, this is like, I, I made it and this is really going to take off and go big time. Did did that ever happen? Um, I'm not sure if I ever, if I ever had that, but I did, I did have those feelings where I felt like I remember going to work and feeling like, wow, this is great, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you were in a show at the rep that you thought might go to Broadway at one point. I was? That's no. No, wrong. Me? Wrong. No, not me. I saw you in the play. You were really good. Oh, I don't thanks. remember the play. But... I don't think I ever. No. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I just pulled that question out of the fact that I just reflected back to myself when I was a younger artist, and like you said, you think there are so many more parts, and you and you think that the the road to success is easier than than it actually is. I suppose was. And your idea yeah. of success is maybe a little. You know, now I've lived my life so far. And I have a lot of respect for working actors. And yeah. um, it's not the same as celebrity. Whenever someone says, oh, you're an actor, I meet someone who's not an actor. They say, oh, you're an actor. I say, yeah, but I'm not a celebrity. I'm an actor. And I love my work. Um, and And success is, I think, measured by, for me, the people you get to collaborate with, yeah. the relationships you build. And... Um, and, and that you, that you get to work. Do you say I'm not a success? So. No, I oh, didn't say I'm not. A, I feel. Uh, sorry. I'm not a celebrity. Sorry. I'm not a celebrity. Uh, because I, oh, you're a filmmaker. And I say, yeah, you've never seen anything I've done. Like, I, why do I need to just cut it off instantly? What's, what's the insecurity? Well, I don't think celebrity is success, but I think a lot of people who are not in the business conflate the two. I feel it. That's what I'm trying to say is I feel like success. I don't, I don't feel like I'm apologizing when I say I'm not a celebrity. That's a personality. Mm -hmm. They're, they're mostly all related, you know, there's, um, and then there are a bunch of working artists and I'm really proud to be in that group of people. And I do wish there was more work, but I don't think, um, I'm not successful. I feel lucky. So I think I cut off the conversation because at this point in my life, I'm with you, I think. Um, I feel really lucky to get to continue to work. I've always felt that way. Like, oh, look how lucky I am. I have work behind me and I have experience, which means I can get better and I get the chance to try to get better. Like, what could I can't imagine a better situation, really. But I do when someone says, oh, you're filming, I just cut it off instantly. Don't want to tell you anything about it. 
And I must be protecting myself in a way that you're more able to you, you, celebrate. Something. You are quite negative on your on your own work. I yeah. Not, started by not, saying, like, I'm not such a good actor, but he's a great Well, that's actor. just objectively I, true. Oh, I mean, it's not, though. Outside of the show, anyway. Well, I, well, I don't know. I don't want to speak for you. I feel like you and I are similar in that we we do what we do and we're really good at it and then to me i nod to actors who can do many different roles across a wide range and are and are awesome in, in all of those different roles um, which is no disrespect to either one of us i i don't think i, I want to get into a little bit of the sort of difficult uh sort of collaborations that you and i have had and that um and just in our lives like how we sort of navigate our way through that. But um, first, let's uh, do this. So we'll be right back. This episode of The Uncertain Artist is sponsored by Toulouse Petit. Now, I'm not a very good traveler. Or to put it in therapy speak, I'm still on my way to becoming a very good traveler. One place I've never been, I mean, one place I will visit someday, is New Orleans. But until that day comes, I will happily settle for a meal at Toulouse Petit, a very cool Cajun Creole restaurant in Queen Anne with a warm New Orleans-influenced dining room and bar. With a fantastic brunch and a very popular happy hour, Toulouse Petit has long been at the top of anyone's list of favorite Seattle restaurants. So whether you're a great traveler or on your way to becoming one, what are you waiting for? And we're back. I have. I'm. I'm wondering that question you just asked me. I'm. I'm wondering what your take on that was. When right? Yeah. Well, I was just thinking. You. You flashed me back to when I was like 25, 28. You know, uh, and, and and my idea of success was like, like you said during the break, like climbing the ladder. Like there's the, and I, I suppose winning an Oscar or something. You were in L.A. then, right? Uh, when I was 28, no, I was. Not yet. I'm talking about one in Seattle. Okay, with uh, with off wall players and all right. that before before I went to LA. Um, uh, but today, uh, to me, artistic achievement at the highest order is one audience member or one reader or one visitor to a gallery having the experience of of wow, that was that was fantastic. And it's not about getting a, a million hits on YouTube. It's it's just about touching one audience member at a time, kind of. Which which I, I feel that I, I've I've seen your performances where that happened for me, and I've seen your films or your your. I'm I'm smiling. Your late uh... night your late night clubs where you know for me it was like a, a peak artistic experience. Oh, for the no, I'm so a friend of mine, George Meyer, who wrote for The Simpsons, yeah. once said, if we make just one person laugh, we failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of failure. Um, Thanks for undercutting my my. That's my job. Human, <laughs> Your human. job is support me. My job is undercutting <laughs> Um so I've always, uh, I've long felt that it's super duper important for an artist to fail publicly and like completely um, in large part because you discover, oh, the world keeps going. Like it's actually not over. I can pick me. And without that, you're never going to let yourself be the full artist you could be because your fear of failure is so strong. Um, 
and and I have lots of stories of failure, like luckily for me. But I just wondered if you had anything to add to that. A failure? Yeah. Do you feel like you can point to a time where you're like, I failed, but I still survived, or I failed and I still regret and can't stop thinking about it every day, or nothing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you have to have the first relationship with it, or maybe you, maybe I'm wrong about this, but how would you stay in this world if you carried? the regret of of failure you'd be so miserable yeah most of the times my failures luckily for me result in me laughing harder than i ever and then you move you on know. you look i'm back thinking of really... one in the late night club i did this complex show and uh you know one night and it went way too long and i won't <laughs> describe why but it it just went way too long it was a disaster and uh there were people from Theater X in the audience, mm -hmm. a wonderful company, oh, really? and uh, John Kazanjan was in the audience, <laughs> and it was a full house because the late night always sold out. When the lights came up at the end of the show, there were three people in the audience, and two of them were my parents. <laughs> 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 and it was the most miserable, mm -hmm. and really maybe 12 seconds later, I was like happy, like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, well, still here. So anyway, do you ever have, have you ever had like a failure? It feels like a failure. And then you look back on it and you think that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the time. So I'll give you two. Okay. And one involves you. So one is um, we rented a storefront down on Bell and second and called it the Belltown Coliseum and did a few things in there. And one was this play called the gas heart, which is a Dada play by Tristan Zara that, is basically unperformable and um and uh I, I you know we did a good job it was a great show actually but the opening which we stole from squat theater essentially involved uh, dana hansen running down through belltown while this teapot was boiling uh, so the, tea, the the start of the show was when the teapot came to boil and a film we were seeing the film of her running and so the idea was the film would run, and at some point you'd realize, because there's a storefront, you'd look out the window, and there's the character from the film mm -hmm. running down at the same time. Like, we mm -hmm. choreographed it pretty well, mm -hmm. and she was going to enter, and this cool thing was going to happen when she entered. So the first episode, or the first uh, show, it was full. I mean, there was 50 people, but full in this small place. And um, as the teapot boiled and we exhaled, <laughs> all of our audience members, the windows fogged up until you could see absolutely nothing oh. out the window. And, and it was crushing at first. And then I thought, oh, this is the coolest thing. Like, that's my ideal of theater, is that what you do just reminds us all of what it is to be alive with other people. Like, and what could be a better sort of picture of it than we're fogging the window? So that was oh. really nice. But I wanted to bring up, because it's been gnawing at me since I knew you were going to come. So... Uh, now I'm doing all the talking, but that's okay. that's great. Yeah, okay. great. <laughs> um, so a number of years ago, oh, I told this in an earlier podcast how Brian Faker had commissioned me to make a piece for the Seattle International Children's Festival or mm -hmm. something. At the time, I was working two jobs and I'd started the film company, and I needed the money, frankly, and I took the gig and I decided that I wanted 
to make a show about nothing. No, I wanted to do a show with as little happening as possible so that all the stuff that's actually happening in the room with other people could be what we were paying attention to. And it's sort of an idea that's dear to my heart, but I just wasn't in a mental place to do it well and to really work it and think it through. And I asked Annette to be in it. And the main task, as I remember, give you was uh, there was a Super 8 film and it projected onto this big glass that had a trough underneath with um, paint, white paint, and Annette would paint the glass and that would reveal what was happening mm. in the film and without mm. the paint. And then she was able to squeegee it and make it go away. So the, the, the paint became uh, the white screen exactly. that it was projected yeah. upon. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just, I, I we've never talked about it. I feel terrible about it. I feel like I just didn't follow through. I didn't give you, it wasn't a safe place. Um, and the one that really bothers me is that one show, there were a busload of kids and everyone from the film company came when my company and the film stuck in the projector mm. and we couldn't fix it. And that could have been totally fine and great along the lines of a window fogging up and I could have gone with it and I couldn't. It was like, yeah, I just wasn't emotionally ready to deal with it. And I think I said, all right, show's over, go mm. home. It was I still feel so bad about that. I, I, I'm looking, I'm thinking back to that time and I don't, I don't know how you could have, I, I don't think you should be so hard on yourself. I don't, I don't know how you could have, um, because there was so little happening, I don't know how you could have that could have been like the window fogging because it was the main yeah, what's the show? piece of the show. Yeah. Um, but I and could I, have. And I remember the, the heartbreak of the projector, you know, having these projectors that were um, old and beautiful and the sound of them and everything, but having them fail. And then you, if I remember right, went out and got a bunch of backup super oh, eight so that possible, it wouldn't yeah. happen again. Um, but uh, I also remember working on that show thinking, gosh, I wish there was a way to keep working with this idea because the, I, the, it was really fun. Um, thinking about where the positive space with the white paint yeah, the you film, did so well. where where it could be the screen could be removed or added in to expose something in the film yeah um or that there was a conversation i remember there was a conversation to be had there that seemed really neat and exciting and fun isn't, and isn't it silly like i just feel so much better already like how do you keep stuff in for so long you did say you know. this podcast is kind of like your therapy well i i said it was a step to therapy it's not actually but uh that performance was hard on you it was hard, I, it, was hard. Yeah, it was tough but the the concept there's something i feel like yeah i still I want to return thought... to that someday um 
just just sitting here listening to you talk, I don't know if our audience will be able to hear it, but this is podcast number four, and it's been sunny every time we've done it. Today is the mm. first quintessential Seattle rainy day, and this is a podcast that's centered in Seattle. I don't know if we can hear the rain on the roof, but it's it's gorgeous, uh, and I feel I feel blessed. Yeah, like it, it, it'll it's part of the part of the podcast. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to ask uh, something about uh, you as a as an actor, as a, um, Annette. Um, so I'm tr I'm trying to remember if we if we knew each other as friends first before I knew you as an actor or saw you as an actor. I kind of suspect that might be the case. Um, my my question is, because um, I, I guess I have the impression that I knew you more as a as a friend first because I. I find you to be kind of a, a quiet person in real life, sort of, and and um, and then I saw you on stage, and you were doing a filling up the stage, filling up the space with your voice, with your with your presence. You seem to be a person who, on stage, you're you're really big, and you and you take up the space, and yet uh, personally, you seem not that way. Is that do you think that's unique to you as an actor? It seems like it's probably not actually. No, I don't think, I think there, you know, every actor is different, but I think there's a population of actors who are um, maybe in their day-to-day -day life. Some people might say shy or some people might say not shy, but internal or some people, you know, just um, a little quieter for whatever reason mm -hmm. uh, and in whatever way who enjoy performance as a as sort of a place to share more of themselves mm -hmm. if you uh, were given i'll just pull a big one out like um othello you were cast as othello i don't think i would ever be cast as othello. well one of the crimes of theater in general is 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 when we decide who can and can't play certain parts based on what nothing something other than your ability you could play othello and i'd go pay good money I would all right i'll choose uh, i'll choose a different choose character a different character macbeth not lady macbeth but macbeth let's say you were given that role um would that initially feel like an op what would that feel like for you um I mean, I did George, for example, in It's a Wonderful Life, and that's not typical casting, and I was just excited Wow! to do it. But you did that. That was part of what? The it was a funny, it, so it, yeah, it was 1448. It's this, so 1448, in fact, they're having a performance on the 9th of December. Um, it's not 14, it's 1448 Productions, but it's Theater Anonymous. It's okay, called. Explain so, to our audience what that is. Theater Anonymous is is a is a way of doing theater where each person in the cast is rehearsed, so you are rehearsed, but individually, and you sign an oath at the beginning that you won't tell anybody you're in the show, and um, except for one person who can help you with lines, and then you rehearse with the stage manager and the director, and that's it for. 
not too long, but you get you basically you so go to rehearsal. The they're show. like this person will be standing here, and there'll be furniture right. here, and and so then come the show, everyone is rehearsed, but has never been. No one aware knows of who's who in play. Is, oh, you don't know who your scene partners are. That's kind of magical. Every, everybody's in the audience. I, I saw one. In the of, I, I saw one of those shows as an as a real audience member one time. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. You stand up with your first line, and you run down on the stage, and you're added into the. And there's a little moment of surprise. It's a community thing for sure. Yeah, I have such an interesting, my, you know, my first response is so negative to that because uh, I feel like it's people sacrificing the opportunity to really dive into the show together. But then my second is, so I have a similar experience. We did a production of As You Like It. The person who was playing one of the parts couldn't. Uh, couldn't do a role and someone flew down from Boston to play the role. We uh, took them through at dress rehearsal. You put your hand here and the scepter will be put in your hand. And, you know, and then he did the show and he said it was the most beautiful, like dreamlike experience yeah. ever. I and I also think of this Mike Lee film where he often doesn't tell. So uh, life is sweet is a great Mike Lee film. And it's a mother and a daughter who only know each other over the phone and then they they meet they agree to they arrange to meet and they meet um but they didn't know each other who who was going to play the role mm. um, and so you capture that on film it's pretty extraordinary or so he claims he captured the I film feel I feel like the 1448 their 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 thing i mean it, i think it's really cool it's there's always something going on in their in their in their short plays or in this situation where you are absolutely dependent on the people you're performing with to connect and find the story. And it, I don't think you're throwing away. Yeah, no, you're making it, you're making it, me see. It, it's, it, it's, it's, it's no, got, it, it, it depends on who's doing it though. And, but it's, I think it's really beautiful. And you played George. This is oh. the, um, the Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Role. Yeah. And I, you know, that's like top 10 movie for me. It's yeah. a wonderful life. It's so deeply. We got uh, good rich, top 10s today. But... What was the other one? Uh, one Flew Over That. Oh, One Flew Over That. Yeah, sorry, Joe, I interrupted you. <laughs> it's uh, kind of a form of improv, uh, the the theater anonymous, in a sense, isn't it? You're not improvising lines, but you're Hopefully. improvising everything else about theater, right? About the the, sh the show in terms of your interactions with those specific actors. Well, even, I mean, that's kind of, rehearsed what's not rehearsed is the so you know the blocking because you do get that what's what's not rehearsed what's improvised is is the chemistry mm -hmm. and that is really cool yeah. because it just lives in this one moment and and everybody's all in to make it work because the 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 edge of a really deep failure is so close and it takes everybody Leaning in, mm -hmm. and I love that. I'm getting the a lot of love to make it, yeah, fly. So in "It's a Wonderful Life," which was made in 1946, Jimmy Stewart um, and Frank Capra had both been severely changed by their experiences in World War II. Jimmy Stewart was asked to, you know, entertain the troops, and instead became a fighter pilot, and just had a, you know, came back with lots of trauma. And we're seeing that in the movie. But my favorite little piece in It's a Wonderful Life is when they're dancing 
in the gym. They're all like on the edge of their, who knows how wonderful their life can be, right? They're so young. And uh, it's 1930 something, or it's like what they're on the edge of in reality is the Great Depression and World War II. Mm -hmm. And when the floor opens to reveal the swimming pool, which is a, a comic moment, it's actually devastating because really that is... And it's deep and it's dark and it's black back when you can really do black and black and white. And it's it's got both. I just love it so much. It's it's foreboding and deeply comic at the same time. Anyway, that's the end of my little story. He about loves that. Yeah. So are this December 9th show, are you in this show or just well, something, something you're letting If I was in it, I wouldn't be able to oh. say. <laughs> But I think still, I mean, I'm I'm gonna Screwed. go watch it. You're, 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 you're gonna go there, and you're gonna be in the audience, and I'm what, watch. whether yeah. you're in the yeah. in the show or not, we don't yeah. we don't know. I'm gonna watch too. <laughs> 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 oh, so we have a question for you from an audience member. I think okay. we do. Great. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Lacey from New York. Um, she asks, what advice would you give young actors that are just starting out? Ooh. Um, Do you hate that question or love that question or nowhere in between? No, it's great. Okay, it's go fine. for it. Um, I would, no, someone in New York is going <laughs> to hate that question. <laughs> Sorry, Lacey. I think uh, do it because you love it and um, do it as long as you love it and um if you don't love it, stop doing it because that I I think I would say that about any kind of art. But I hope that you will always love it. In that book right there, Synthesizing Gravity, up on the top there by Kay Ryan, a great poet, terrific book of essays. She has an essay about riding cross country. She was probably 30, biking cross country solo. Uh, not knowing what she wanted in life and wondering whether she wanted to be a poet or whether she should go on and be a poet. And she tells a great little tale of being somewhere in a sort of Grand Canyon-y type and asking that question, should I do this to herself? And hearing a voice ask, do you love it? Hmm. And she thought to herself, I do. And she's been a poet ever since. That's good advice. So you... um. We know you're a teacher. You teach at Freehold. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you taught there for many years. Um, yeah, off and on. Off and on. Um, well, uh, so what uh, do you think Freehold's kind of a special place for acting in, in Seattle? Uh, I do. Hey, I know someone else who teaches there too. Oops. <laughs> Is that you, Joe? That's me. Oh, yeah. I love Freehold just because of that, because you can, I mean, I feel like it's a place where anybody who's curious about the craft has a chance to intersect with a teacher who is a professional and has been, you know, doing it in Seattle and, um, and it's, and the classes are good quality. So I think it's like one of, I think it's the only place like that. And, um, yeah, it probably is, isn't it? Yeah. In, in this region. Yeah. I've noticed that there seems to be a following of students who are crazy about it. You know, they, yeah. they take class after class after class and continue to really get a lot, a lot out of it. And and they'll take uh, stage combat and then they'll take your acting class. And I teach comedy writing. I mean, it's a very, very wide uh, smorgasbord. From the yeah. outside, 
old and outside me, it feels like there's just not nearly as many opportunities to to do your craft in Seattle. When I first moved here, was told, I think correctly, that there was more theater per capita in Seattle than anywhere in the world. That's just not the case anymore. It doesn't right? feel that way right now. It's not, it feels, you know, we've lost a lot of, we lost almost all of the mid-range theaters in Seattle. Um, we've lost, yeah. Uh, and I think the pandemic was really hard on theaters. I hope they'll hang in there um, because I think the audiences are just now coming back. Mm. Just now, like just this year, really, people were trickling in before, but I feel like they're just starting. I, I'm going to the movie theater a lot and I see people in the movies now and I didn't a year ago. Mm -hmm. So I feel like people are, you oh, know that. I hope some new theaters can start up. You know, some of the that would be new great. mid range. I mean, if I were young, I would think, okay, this is the place to be because there's not enough going on and there's enough people who want it to. Let's go. Let's do stuff. Yeah. You know, there's the problem is also money, space. Yeah. Rent. Space, yeah. 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 There's, and, you know, there are conversations about that, but there's nothing, there's no sustainable help um, for space in this area. Here's for, a suggestion. Downtown, where I lived, I lived down Pioneer Square until during the pandemic, uh, and it's just dead, like there's nothing happening and it's not coming back. And they're, they're entertaining, like, what can we do, you know? Build a theater. Yeah. That's what the number one thing they should do, because that would be the biggest driver of change, I think. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Someone, I mean, it would take somebody, I don't know where the funding, people don't direct funding well, towards I went, theater I went or to the see arts. Uh, Nate Bargatze mm -hmm. uh, at the Paramount the other day and, and remembered, well, some rich person saved the Paramount. That's, that's right. why it's still around. You know, we, the money's here. It's just convincing people to do it and mm -hmm. the right thing with it. Who am I to speak? <laughs> uh, Who are you? I want to end this on a higher, more optimistic note because we're almost out of time. Um, uh, so let me think for a second. Yeah. So what? Well, what? Uh, I, I can't. I have down. I only have downer thoughts in my head. It's the rain. But that's why I moved to Seattle is I, I came here and it was gloomy and, and I thought, oh, like the, the outside matches my inside. You know, that's a pretty common. And I was born here. So, uh, yeah, yeah that's uh, I was born with the, this outside and inside. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'll, I, I know how to end it on a third note. I'm going to ask you now, would you be in season three of The yes. Uncertain Detective? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Okay. So this year we're doing... Um, the episodes are going to world premiere at the SIF Film Center. So episode one of season three will world premiere at SIF Film Center on February 26th, big screen. And uh, and then episode two will be the following Mar uh, fourth Monday in March. And then the episode three in April. So we've got work to do. That's super cool. We're, yeah. al we're also going to do a live taping of the podcast. Oh, yeah, and a live taping of the podcast. The following the episode. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Well, uh, thank you, thank so, you much. so, so much. Thank you, Annette. Annette. Please join us next time for another episode of The Uncertain Artist. And if you have a question we can ask our guest in a future episode or ask ourselves, drop it to us in the comments if you're watching on YouTube or email it to us. Our email is theuncertainartistgmail.com. Also, 
As we said, Save the Date, Season 3 of The Uncertain Detective will premiere February 26th at 7 p.m. at the SIF Film Center, right next door to Climate Pledge Arena. We'll follow the screening with a live taping of this podcast, so come join us. Tickets are free and can be reserved through the Seattle International Film Festival website. Hope to see you there. <laughs>